Welcome to Think Global, a podcast for globally-minded disciples seeking God's justice, mercy, and shalom throughout the world. We're glad you're here. Welcome back to the Think Global Podcast. Thanks again for being a part of the conversation that we get to have here with you. Uh, with me is my co-host, Brandon Stiver. I am Phil Dark, and we have another another great episode with you. Brandon, what, what, how are you doing, man? What are you thinking about everything? I'm doing good. Uh, this is, this is going to probably be a very much a Pacific Northwest uh, feel uh, episode. I had to put my sweater on. You were just telling me you have soccer today, and it's cold down there even in NorCal. Yes. Uh, and not only uh, are we cold, but undoubtedly our guest today is also cold because he is he, he kind of seems like – now, I just met him. Awesome guy. We got Dr. Forrest Inslee coming on the show today. Uh, he kind of seems like the kind of guy that you would want to go like sit around the campfire with, you know, mm-hmm, on a, on a mm-hmm. nice like PNW evening in the summer, you know, kind of thing. Like we, we've got we've got the real deal PNW Christian educator yeah. talking with us about something that's just like, oh, man, this is pertinent to literally every person on Earth because we're going to be talking about creation care today. So, yeah, uh, I'm excited. How are you feeling, though, man? I'm good. I just want to give a little uh, defining our terms here. PNW for those of you who are around is Pacific Northwest, uh, and cold is relative. So my uh, daughter, actually, big news in the dark house is officially engaged now. She's been kind of engaged for a while now. If you want to know what that is, you got to send me an email, and I can tell you the long version of that one. Um, but nice. yeah, we've known they were going to get engaged for a while, but they wanted to do it a certain way while they were both in Hawaii together. And so oh, they got gotcha. in Hawaii with YWAM and got engaged last weekend as we record. And so he is from Wisconsin is the point. And when he talks oh. about cold, it's a little different than Northern California cold. So our cold is somewhere in the 30s, 40s. Their cold is in the negative 30s, negative 40s. Um, and uh, he goes ice fishing and things like that. So, uh, you know, it's it's a little different life than I've ever known and uh, really want to know, quite frankly. Um, I might go, like, hunting or bow hunting with him someday in the summer um, or, you know, maybe when it's not quite as cold. But we'll see. Right. Anyway, well, so, uh, I, yeah. It's, it's true. Not everything is relative, but sometimes a person's perception of temperature certainly is being a Southern California guy. This is very cold to me. My folks also live in Wisconsin and that is like a whole other degree. Now I won't say this in any positive sense. It also relates to the conversation we're about to have with Dr. Inslee, but the, but the globe is warming. So maybe that's good news. No, it's bad news. (laughs) (laughs) Um, At any rate. Um, So whether you are in warmer temperatures or colder temperatures, uh, we're excited to get into this conversation that we had uh, with a professor and leader at Circlewood, uh, the organization here in the Pacific Northwest. He's also a podcaster. Uh, Their show is called Earth Keepers. Uh, Recommend it to our audience. But uh, let's get into this interview that Phil and I were able to have with Dr. Forrest Inslee. Well, Forrest, it's so great to have you on Think Global. How are you doing? Uh, it's good being here. Thanks so much. Waiting for snow yeah. on my end, actually. Well, you know, you know where I'm at, we don't really get snow. But, you know, that's, that's uh, uh, except one time in my town, a little fun fact, on one half of the town, it snowed. On my half, it did not snow. So that's that's uh, pretty much where we're at in the, in the Northern California area. Um, but uh, can you just uh, introduce yourself? to our audience, how, how God let you into the, led you into the, uh, let you in, I guess as well, <laughs> um, into the global nonprofit space. Sure. Yeah. Currently I'm a part-time professor, uh, in international community development to live in the Seattle area. Uh, I also work for an organization called Circlewood and, uh, for that organization, I focus on environmental education for churches and also do a podcast called Earth Keepers. Uh, just in terms of how I got here, I mean, if you go way back, you know, as a student in university, I uh, really made a commitment to both community development and and even missions. And so 
did lots of grad school and seminary prep for that, and eventually ended up in Istanbul, Turkey, living there for a while, uh, doing theological education, working with street kids. Uh, and my primary job was uh, helping to start a church uh, with a group of uh, n- new Christ followers there. Uh, eventually came back to Seattle after a number of years there and started an MA program in community development in the area. And I guess I've had 17 years now of prepping students for nonprofit work all over the world. Uh, and it's really through them that I tend to have my nonprofit involvement. Uh, and it's really fun. I get to be in contact with folks doing cool work all over the world, like anti-trafficking, social enterprise, sustainable edu- or agriculture. So yeah, that's where I am now. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so you'd appreciate the, uh, you know, that's, that's what, as Brandon said before we started interview or started the conversation here recording, um, we all, we all teach at different, um, I guess not different levels. We're all at the same mm-hmm. level in, in university, but you're doing it, you're doing it all the time, which is super cool. And Brandon and I do adjunct and, and that joy of, um, teaching people about these things that that we have seen around the world and been able to do is is pretty amazing to prepare them with some of the knowledge that we wish we had when we when we had started and that we're continuing to learn um, it keeps you from really getting jaded doesn't it i mean 100%. being around people who are so full of vision and excitement about you know yeah. new ways to serve folks around the world it it sort of for me gives me energy uh to keep on having hope so i do feel 100%. privileged 100%. That's so cool. Totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. Um, so, uh, you know, this is just a question we have that we want to want to hear from you on is what, why do you think it's important for Christians to not only think about their f- own family and community, which comes naturally, right? When you're in your own backyard, but also consider the needs of people globally who we may never see, may never meet ever. Yeah. You know, I've actually weirdly thought about a version of that question recently, you know, watching what's going on with Gaza, watching especially all the kids who are suffering because of mm-hmm. that that war, it's really made me ask, you know, how how long can we go on watching what's happening to people and and kind of guarding our hearts, walling off our hearts? If if those were our own kids, we would be in despair. So I guess my answer <laughs> that I'm coming to is I need to keep reminding myself that God loves all ethnic and national uh, nationalities just the same, uh, and that Christ came into the world as an atoning sacrifice for all of us, uh, and he taught us that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. But, you know, I'm intrigued by the way you asked that question with that word families, uh, because I think that for me has been a kind of a core issue uh, in my life is that whole journey to understanding what family really is. And I think one thing I've come to believe is that, uh, you know, Jesus really redefines for us what family is. And in the New Testament, especially, we see that, you know, family is no longer just about blood relation, but family is expanded and redefined on new terms and new commitments. And, you know, what comes to mind is, is passages like, you know, we see in Mark 3, where Jesus is speaking to a crowd and someone says that his mother and brothers and sisters have come for him. But he says, uh, who are my mother and brothers? And then he looks out to the people that he's talking to and says, here are my mother and my brothers. And whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And, you know, for me, that that became an important scripture when I was living in Turkey, because uh, that, that question of what is family, who is family was just so prominent uh, in my experience, partly um, because in Turkey, you know, not many people are Christians. It's a Muslim culture. And so to become a Christian usually means uh, that you're betraying your family, at least in their view, and they'll mm-hmm. kick you out. So you're, you're not in that, that primary family anymore. And so when it came to starting a church, we had to really realize that, you know, this is not like, you know, the sort of social event church <laughs> that characterizes the Western experience, but, you know, these are suddenly our people. We belong to each other. We need each other to survive. And, um, you know, much of the time we would have to meet in secret as a church, but gosh, those connections just became so important and made me realize that that the way God redefines family um, 
it, it, I realized it, I think, in a, a new and, and powerful way. Um, do you want me to say more? I don't want to go on forever oh, on this. Really good. But, but weirdly, that question is just like one of the questions of my life, honestly, when it yeah. comes to like, why should we care? Um, you know, in Turkey, blood is a really big deal. You know, blood connection is everything. Uh, and you're hugely, fiercely committed to your family um, and much less so with people outside uh, of that, that network. Um, but again, yeah. that got called into question uh, with folks who were making a decision to, fo- decision to follow Jesus because they were kicked out of that system. But, but you know, in yeah. my, my teaching there in, in the church, I still came up against these points of resistance uh, mm-hmm. that were culturally based. Like, for example, it was hard for Turks to understand the idea that God adopts us into the family of God because yeah. adoption is not a done thing in Turkey. Mm-hmm. People just mm-hmm. don't do it. Uh, and so you end up with a lot of street kids, for example. We call them divorce orphans because when uh, a mother, for example, would remarry, the father would often ask her children to leave uh, oh, wow. because they didn't belong to him. They didn't have yeah. that blood tie. And yeah. so a lot of the street kids we worked with uh, were in that situation and I, I would teach about adoption, and I thought, you know, I'm really teaching against resistance, but I realized at some point that people were really hearing me and taking me seriously because one day they came to me and said, oh, you know, we know what you think about adoption and how committed you are to it. So we have a child for you that you're going to adopt. Hmm. And we know this woman uh, who needs to find a home for her child who's not yet born. And we told her that you'd take the child. <laughs> so it was, I was a single guy still, and I was single then. And, uh, but in that moment, I thought, no, this is it. That God, this is what God has for you. So I said yes right away hmm. and then freaked out later on. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so you know, a few months later, uh, took the baby into my home on the day she was born. And uh, the turkey was at that time trying to get into the EU. And so the EU was asking it to change some initial laws to be in line with EU law. And adoption in Turkey wasn't legal uh, by a single person or by a foreigner. But those are the changes they made to the law uh, under EU pressure. And so I was the test case for this new law. And so I'm like walking through the system trying to convince people that, no, I really can't adopt this legal look. Here's the law. So, um, yeah, so adopted her and honestly that family became even more important to me because as a single person I desperately needed my 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 family of the church so they surrounded us and you know to this day I still call them family and just last year was at a wedding of one of the little kids at the time uh uh, and and traveled out there for that so so yeah I the long answer to your question is you know I think God redefines family and Sometimes we can focus too much on what's ours, what's around us uh, at the expense of, of having compassion for, for the needs around the world. And I think that that, that summarizes so succinctly what could be a much longer conversation about why we should care because Mm -hmm. there are brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. They are Imago Dei. Mm -hmm. They are people that God has put us on this, on this earth together to, you know, doing life together looked different back in Jesus's time, looked different back in Abraham's time, looked different even back a hundred years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Now we have a world that is so connected. Mm -hmm. It's like I could literally, I mean, I I could, I did. This morning I was on a Bible study Zoom call with a dude in Sierra Leone, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. real time. Mm -hmm. That just, I mean, you could care before. Now you can actually make impact with people literally around the world. Yeah, no, it's so good. And, and so close to the heart of this podcast, you know, we are, we, mm-hmm. for the last seven, eight years, that's, that's what we've been talking about. We'll continue talking about is the need for kids to be in family, the spirit of adoption, the Romans eight, you know, that is something that permeates. And I remember when we were in Tanzania, you, you say, you know, adoption wasn't a thing in Turkey. In Swahili, there is literally no word for adoption. Hmm. So, it's, you know, so we, so you would get to something like, I maybe have mentioned this on the pod before, but, you know, it's the Roho Ya Kufanya Mwana, the spirit of making one a son, hmm. which I actually really love that because it actually makes it 
more understandable what it is that adoption is. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I just I just love that. And, you know, as we think about, you know, you mentioned Gaza, you, you mentioned, you know, different vulnerabilities and things that people are going through, mm-hmm. um, you know, we do have to care. And that's why mm-hmm. we always want to hear that from our guests. You know, when we think about community development or when we think about, you know, global development, you know, one of the things that there's a lot of talk around and that you really have specialized in is, you know, issues around climate change, loss of biodiversity, pollution. You know, we just recently had, I think it was COP28, you know, so these big meetings and, and, and talking through, you know, what agreements can we come to from like an international multilateral, you know, standpoint. And, um, you know, for us as Christians, though, this is something that is, um, we have a higher mandate than just whatever, you know, international law or affairs, you know, kind of says. But, you know, as we kind of think about these things and, and based off of your work at Circlewood and, and elsewhere, could you maybe just kind of give us a snapshot overview, you know, of what's happening? What on earth is happening? Like literally what on earth is happening? And uh, to what degree should we be worried? You know, uh, you know, even what's what's the what's the balance between doomsaying versus, mm-hmm. you know, having Christian hope and action? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I won't say anything that people don't already know, but, you know, in brief, the climate is changing, and that means the world is changing, and it's rapidly becoming a planet that's getting harder and harder to live on. The weather's becoming more extreme. Uh, We're even now experiencing, you know, more severe weather-related disasters in the global north and global south, and whole ecosystems are collapsing. Whole species are disappearing, Uh, and in great part, it's the activities of people that are driving us uh, toward global disaster. You know, and it's true, if we made necessary huge changes, the kind of changes discussed at COP28, especially eliminating our use of fossil fuel and switching to renewable power sources and more sustainable agriculture, you know, we might at the very least reduce the severity of the changes that are already in progress. However, the changes we are making now are not nearly significant enough to make that much of a difference. I mean, climate change is happening, and it's only going to get worse. But you asked about the balance between, you know, doomsaying on the one hand and Christian hope and action on the other. And really, that's the space between despair and hope that I do my most important work these days with Circlewood. And uh, Circlewood and the Earth Keepers podcast, we really are aiming to help Christ followers to face up to the truth of the unfolding climate disaster that we live in. Uh, At the same time, we're constantly working to remind Christians and ourselves that we follow a God who can do all things, you know, a God of healing, uh, even healing damaged ecosystems, a God of redemption and restoration, even able to redeem and restore blighted landscapes and environmentally impoverished communities. So basically, you know, the way I think of it is we hold on to irrational hope. You know, hope that's unwilling to give up on the suffering world because we understand that God loves this world still. So nothing's impossible. And I think it, you know, it's incumbent on us as Christ followers to believe that, to hold on to hope and to to continue to not only have hope, but act on the hope. You know, so in, in terms of action, just imagine, you know, if all God's people all over the world actually took seriously our God-given responsibility to take care of God's creation. I mean, what if churches everywhere became known for their passion for creation care? And what if Christ followers came to believe that acts of love and service and advocacy for creation were in some ways also acts of radical obedience and worship? I mean, that's the dream I have to hold on to that I've devoted my life to. So basically, I choose to hope and I I try to encourage other people to have hope as hard as that is in the the light of circumstances that we face now. Yeah, no, that's so good. And, and of course we can never divorce the reality of what's happening ecologically with the fact that humans have been given stewardship over this earth. You know, that goes all the way back to Genesis one. And, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about over the years has been, poverty, you know, um, 
And I, I really think there's a lot of interconnectedness, you know, between all of these different vulnerabilities, right? We talk about kids that are out on the streets. We talk about, you know, ecological degradation. We talk about poverty. We talk about, you know, other types of oppression and vulnerabilities in the world. You know, there's a lot of interconnectedness between all of these things. Can you maybe just even kind of help us draw that line between, you know, ecological degradation and poverty specifically? Yeah, of course, that's becoming more and more of an issue these days as, you know, climate related disasters are are becoming more frequent. I think one thing that uh, people are starting to come around to is the fact that that poorer countries uh, tend to suffer the effects of climate change to a much greater degree than folks in most wealthier countries, even though they have done very little to cause climate change. So there's a huge injustice uh, that's sort of built into that dynamic. And that's why you often hear appeals like at COP28 for the transfer of wealth from rich countries who are in great part responsible for climate change to poorer countries to help them to mitigate the climate disasters, uh, results of climate disasters like flooding and rising sea levels or devastating hurricanes. When these sorts of disasters hit people who are already poor, they only become poorer and their chance of recovery, economically speaking, uh, is diminished. Climate change is devastating whole economies and wiping out people's ability to care for themselves and their families. And already, we're seeing a demographic of what's being called climate refugees because people leaving their homelands uh, because of climate disaster have made it impossible to stay where they are, uh, to stay in life as they knew it. And so they're uh, in desperation looking for a different context uh, just in order to survive. But I'll say that. Oh, go ahead. You want to say something? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, and it is one of those things that is touching communities everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, so our listeners might have heard about this, you know, fund that you were just alluding to in terms of almost like climate reparations type of type of situation, um, because, you know, the polluters are not, are also are the people that have the biggest polluters are also the ones that have the most money to kind of soften the blow of that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, at the same time, it's it's affecting here as well. I was listening to the news this morning and um, we're recording in mid-January. This will re- release at the end of the month. Um, but it was listening to the news today where they were even saying, you know, there was the big, all the mayors, mayors from major um, uh, cities throughout the U.S. were meeting with the, at the White House um, this, uh, this week. And one of the people was from Providence, uh, Rhode Island, and he was being interviewed and said, you know, we are actually in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, having significant effects uh, to our infrastructure because of climate change. And we just think like, wait, but that's that's like a, that's like a city in the U.S., like even them. And it's like, yeah, even them. And all the more so when there, when there aren't those buffers that are in place. So, I mean, it just totally exacerbates, exacerbates poverty, you know, even in those areas. I mean, can you imagine what it would mean if great sectors of the church began to advocate for that kind of justice, you know, the justice of reparation and, and helping people to mitigate climate change? I mean, to me, that's, that, that's work of grace and mercy, right? And But it just sort of isn't on the church's radar that that could count as God's work, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I hope that, that that could change. Right. You know, well, you, yeah. I, well, and I've even heard you say on your own podcast, you know, mm-hmm. about this overemphasis among Christians or uh, evangelicals, you know, that people, of course, yeah, okay, people matter most, but in some ways... Uh, people are the only ones that matter, it, it, meaning not necessarily creation or the environment of the earth. You know, where do you kind of see this this pop up, you know, and, and mm-hmm. how is a better understanding of scripture kind of help us to include other things in terms of what, what actually matters? Yeah. You know, that question really makes me think in, in broader terms beyond the evangelical church, because if you look at the field of development, you know, economic development or community development. I think as a field, we have an overemphasis on the needs of people at the expense sometimes uh, of the broader community of creation. And, you know, it's understandable. What we're about is is compassion. We want to save lives, make lives better. We want to, people to thrive. But I think that emphasis sometimes makes us short-sighted. And we don't think more holistically to understand that 
that it's not just about people that really it's our our mission to look at the whole community of creation that includes the ecology, that includes the non-human elements of creation. So I think as a field, that corrective needs to happen. And I do see some movement to that end. It's one of the things I actually um, work for kind of through my students these days. Um, but, you know, to your point about the evangelical church, uh, they have similar, I would say, imbalanced priorities that uh, I think we need to work on, partly because historically the emphasis has, in evangelical circles, been on the saving of souls. <laughs> and the corollary assumption to that is often that the earth actually doesn't matter because, you know, in the end, it's all going to burn anyway. What's really eternal is the souls of people. And I think that's just uh you know, historically entrenched misreading of scripture uh, and ignores the principles that are spelled out in Genesis, right? About about our role to care for for all of creation. I would say that that I have to be careful about making sweeping generalizations, though, even about the evangelical church, because really much of the evangelical church does tend toward more of a balanced view. Uh, of the environment. And I I read a survey recently that 94% of British evangelicals think that it is a Christian's duty to care for the environment. That really surprised me. That seems really high to me. I think you see more divergence and division uh, in the church in places like the US or Canada. I don't think that um, evangelical resistance to say believing in climate change has all that much to do with the Bible. I mean, I think really has more to do with politics and culture. You know, in the States, for example, concern for the environment uh, has really become culturally linked to liberal causes, quote unquote. And so environmentalism and environmental causes gets rejected out of hand by conservative elements of the church just because of labels, you know, cultural associations. You know, similarly, a dominant element in American evangelical culture is a learned distrust of science, for example. You know, so when scientists warn about impending changes that climate change is bringing and recommend to us lifestyle changes that we need to make to try to avoid those effects, the same sector of the evangelical church is culturally conditioned to close their ears to those voices, to view them as suspect. And these same sorts of biases also prevent them from paying any attention to the principles, again, of creation care that are throughout the Bible and especially are, are clarified in Genesis. So again, though, it's, it's better not to generalize about evangelicals. I think that's even changing. I think that shift yeah. is happening. But there are plenty who do believe or could be persuaded to believe that God calls Christians to care for all of creation, including but not limited to people. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's so good. And and I, I appreciate what you said there, even in terms of like, people are maybe coming at this from different political, you know, standpoints and they could be Christian or non-Christian or, you know, there's going to be various people, you know, literally as you were talking, there was a scene that popped into my head. I don't know if either of you are uh, watchers of uh, the show Parks and Rec, uh, but there's a character on there, Ron Swanson, who's very libertarian and he loves the outdoors. And there's another guy named uh, Ron who uh, is his counterpart in another city. And he also loves the outdoors and they think this is just the fantastic match between the two of them. But then he finds out that the other Ron (laughs) is very, you know, tree hugger, liberal, whatever. And it's just kind of funny because at first you kind of think like, oh, these two Rons have something to connect on. And yet they kind of become diametrically opposed in other regards. It it kind of makes me think, uh, man, whether you are of this political persuasion or that political persuasion, whether you are a Christian or a follower of another religion or no religion, Mm -hmm. it seems like hopefully we could all agree that the environment that we live in is important, you know, Mm -hmm. and that, and that hopefully whether we're of this persuasion or that, uh, that we would have that, you know, I I almost kind of want to ask, you know, even as you say, you know, it's not. Hey, Brandon, can I just say something on that? Oh yeah. You want to talk about parks and rec, don't you Phil? No, I'm just joking. I'd love to talk. I'd love to do an entire (laughs) episode on parks and rec, but we're not going to do that right now. No, I think it just goes to our, where our, I'm just going to say our country at this point, because I know it's as better, probably Western Europe. I'm not sure the rest of the world. 
Um, I've had conversations with people, but I typically don't talk politics the rest of the world, but just in our either or society, right? Mm -hmm. We are, we are not in a both and we are, you know, and, and I believe that the, the third way really is a both and way Mm -hmm. for the most part. Now that's an, that's a generalization as well, which is what I'm going to get to is we tend to take the specific to the general, right? With everything or, or do the other fallacy from general to specific on certain things. But in this, in this case, I do believe, yes, of course, creation care. It's all throughout scripture, like you said. Now, are there people who are kind of wacky one way or the other? Yeah, 100%. So, but I think we throw the baby out with the bathwater when we say it's all a bunch of malarkey or whatever word you want to use. I like that word malarkey. So I like throwing that out there every so often. Um, but I, I do, I do want to say, because there will be people that say, well, yeah, but just, you know, climate change, it was global warming and now it's climate change and now it's this, and then it's going to be this, and then it's going to be that. There's truth to that, right? Because, you know, kind of like, because politicians want to go into an either or because it's way easier. It's too hard for a sound bite to go into the nuance of things. And that's what we talk on this show, which was, I love this conversation is there is nuance. There's nuance to it. It's hard. It's not a thing that you can just look at and go, of course, there's just, you know, um, years, centuries, we don't have centuries of data. So we don't know, is this a cyclical thing? Is it not a cyclical thing? Is it caused by humans? Is it not causing? It really doesn't matter at the end of the day. There are changes that are causing, you know, major events. Like in our lifetime, we haven't seen the amount of things, or maybe we have, and we just haven't, um, uh, not even paid attention. Maybe we didn't have the ability to measure them. Maybe you don't have the ability to get it out that we don't have, we didn't have 24 seven news cycles. Mm. So we definitely didn't pay attention to them, but beyond that, maybe they did happen and we just didn't measure them. Right. So all that to say, what is the end game is, Hey, we need to care. <laughs> and if a hurricane causes this disaster somewhere, if a, if a monsoon, have, if a, if a, um, you know, typhoon, if, if whatever these things are earthquakes, I mean, Hades had how many, it, it, these are things that are caused and we know that, um, you know, if we can help in some way, mm-hmm. what is our role? So I think that is the question that we need to consider. And it is impacted by a lot of other things. But too often we say, nope, not even going to think about it because, you know, Biden said something about it last Tuesday, so I don't care about it. Or Trump said something about it in his speech the other day. So I, I can't, I can't agree with that because if I agree with that, therefore I am, I am that guy or I am that, you know, religion. And I say religion because I think politics has become religion. So anyway, I appreciate appreciate your, your nuanced uh, take on that because I don't know if you've read Catherine Hayhoe's book. Um, Mm -hmm. She, she does a great job of talking about how to talk about climate change issues. <laughs> and and she knows, she acknowledges that there are huge divisions even within families about how mm-hmm. to to view environmental issues. But you know, her point is that you you need to learn how to let go of some of the things, some of the details, which may not be all that crucial, and just find those points of common ground. You know, the two runs, I think, is a great metaphor. You know, they do in fact have a love of nature in common and that is a basis for for conversation for for moving ahead i have a a couple of students who live in the deep south of the u.s uh, and i had them on the podcast uh, for uh, a couple years ago asking them like how do you do it (laughs) i know that you both are are you know actually activists in terms of of climate or earth advocacy but how do you live in the south and they talked about the need to really find those things in common. And they pointed out that a lot of folks in the South are hunters, right? And through hunting, they engage their environment and they love nature. So that becomes for them a place to start a conversation. And I just thought that was really profound uh, and and almost a corrective to me. <laughs> you know, I, I fall into the black and white thinking like, oh, how sure. could they be so stupid to believe this or that, you know, and that just is not helpful. To conversation, it gets us nowhere. Totally, totally. We always create these dichotomies that are really not serving anyone Mm -hmm. other than maybe trying to uh, appease somebody's mental state. You know, it's easy when you just think, well, I'm always right. And those people are always not just wrong, but evil, you know. Um, But the reality is we have to live in 
multiple tensions just to really kind of experience life as a human. And that doesn't, that, that isn't only apply to this in this regard, but in many other areas of life as well. Um, you know, one of the things that I think about, you know, Phil, you mentioned like measurement and media and like some of these things, technologically uh, speaking, that's kind of what, where we're at now. And at the same time, you know, when we think about technology, there has been, you know, from what we can measure, uh, an increase in some of this, um, again, I'll just say ecological degradation from the industrial and post-industrial kind of practices, right? These are technological advancements and, and um, the amount of pollution, the amount of degradation has increased. So I, I'm just kind of interesting, uh, interested to kind of hear from you, Dr. Inslee, you know, as it does seem like a lot of the industrial and post-industrial technological practice got us into this problem that we're currently seeing. Is it is it realistic that we should actually then rely on technology to now get us out of it? Like, or was technology a part of the problem, or kind of how how should we think through technology as it pertains to to this conversation? You know, I I don't have any proof for this, but I anecdotally speaking, I think there's a generational difference uh, in how to answer that question. Did did either of you guys grow up on Star Trek? <clears throat> Oh, uh, yes. Next generation with, uh, with Picard. Uh, sure. yeah. So data wharf, I'm a more of yeah. a star Wars guy in general, but I don't uh, know. How about you, Phil? Star Trek? Yeah, I am not a bit, I mean, I enjoyed, I, I typically am not a huge sci-fi, so I enjoyed mm -hmm. Star Trek four when they came to earth and that was an interesting one for me, but yeah, I know Star Trek well enough to probably get whatever you're throwing down here. Well, Star Trek Four is a great example of what I'm talking about. It's yeah. the sort of magical thinking that we've learned, right? Mm -hmm. Technology can solve everything, and human beings are beautiful and are going to spread our beauty to the rest of the galaxy, right? Uh, but in Star Trek Four, you look at technology, like in the future, in Star Trek times, humpback whales are extinct. So they mm -hmm. go back in time to get humpback whales and bring them into the future. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, a good job. But, you know, I think that, that we're just as naive sometimes in thinking that, yeah, technology is somehow going to solve the problem because it always does. Mm -hmm. But I think that magical thinking is, is not helpful at all. Uh, I mean, sure, I get excited when I hear technologies, uh, new technologies like uh, uh, technologies that re remove carbon from the air. And then you can either sequester it or reuse it. Uh, so, so I probably put too much hope in examples like that because the fact is it's not scalable. The world is not going to suddenly rally around, you know, the some technology and, and pay for the technology and coordinate the technology. I mean, we can't even, you know, agree on fossil fuels. So, so I think uh, it's, a, it's a, an attractive but dead end solution to think about technology solving our problems. Now, the fact is technology has a lot to do with, with slowing uh, the progress of global warming, because if we could only stop using fossil fuels and start using renewable sources like geothermal or solar or wind energy, we would do a lot to prevent the worst of climate change effects from, from coming to pass. Uh, but again, you don't see the, the widespread adoption of those technologies. And so could it be a solution? Sure. But because human beings are in control of that tech, I don't think it's really reasonable yeah. to think about Well, it, it, it kind of begs the question in some regards because it's kind of like, well, what can we do? And especially, you know, with human society, really the entire arc of history has been towards urbanization. That's kind of the major trend and it continues to be the trend, you know, so whether you're in the city or whether you're out, you know, maybe in the rural area, you know, what should people do to play a role in terms of creation care, whether regardless of where you are, but even maybe especially for those city dwellers, what, what, what can people do? What should people do? Yeah. There's a book that I'd recommend to people by Norman Wurzbach called agrarian spirituality and even though he's talking about a spirituality which really kind of finds its value home in in farming and farmers and the way they think about 
about nature, he translates that to urban dwellers and talks about how there are lots of ways to connect and reconnect to nature, uh, but to do so with community. So whole communities, for example, might might choose to farm together uh, in an urban space and then to uh, create food together and then create community around that food. So he has a lot of good ideas about how urban people can actually be an enormous part of helping us to think in different ways about our relationship to the earth. But I think in terms of the angle I'm interested in, I tend to think more about the causes of urbanization and migration to the cities. And in my view, you know, from what I've learned, a lot of people end up in the cities because their more agrarian way of life is no longer possible. You know, modern industrial methods kick them out, right? It's it's not affordable. Uh, big farms swallow up the land. Um Legal systems work against property ownership, so they can't actually lay claim to the land that they may have farmed for generations. So it's a lot of the reasons why people go to the city in the first place is just to survive. They can't survive uh, closer to the land in the ways they've lived traditionally. So I would say that you know part of the problem when it comes to urbanization is that we need to focus on the source of the problem. Like why are people flooding to the cities? And one thing that gives me hope um, is to look at organizations like like Agros. Um, I we have a partnership uh, Circlewood does with Kameno Island Coffee, and Kameno Island Coffee gives a lot of their profits to this organization called Agros. And I went with reps from the coffee company and with Agros to Nicaragua a while ago to see what they were doing with that money, and. Their approach to development is they focus on reestablishing ties to the land by creating new village cooperatives, uh, often recruiting those same displaced farmers who were forced to go to the cities. So they have the skills, they just don't have the capacity. So they, they bring the farmers back to the land, you know, establish them uh, in a way that they have security to farm the land, you know, in perpetuity, and they do it together in, in a cooperative approach. And the villages focus on, you know, sustainable farming, um, caring for the environment, for example, growing shade-grown coffee as opposed to a more industrial approach to, to growing coffee beans. So there's a real sensibility of respect for the land that's built into the agros model. And these communities are built on these ecologically sound and sustainable principles of reconnection to the land. Uh, and I think it's really, you know, an example of of a direction I hope other organizations, development organizations might consider is that more holistic thinking. But all to say that I, I think if you can prevent people flooding to the cities in the first place, that, that that's part of the, the solution, I believe. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because we talked about that tech conversation, which is related to the urbanization conversation because of the fact that they're, you know, creating food now rather than having, you know, farmers. Um, a lot of friends who are farmers and they are being driven out of their ability to farm. And because of whether it's because of the prices, they're just not getting paid enough to be able to make it uh, able to make a living. Um, or even the fact that the demand for whatever they have is less because it's being created somewhere. But when it's being created somewhere, it's not from the land. And a lot of these things are really um, us playing God or trying to play God, mm -hmm. right? Which is, which is not going to end well. We've learned that before in the past, right? Um, and also this fact of, I, I was at a Q uh, conference probably a decade ago, and there was a guy, um, Wired Magazine, I believe it's, I forget his name. Anyway, super smart dude. But one of the things he said is, just because some technology is bad doesn't mean we get rid of technology, hmm. right? How can we make it better, right? Now, the problem with that is that's loaded with value statements. All of this stuff is loaded with value statements, which is when we get into this. So we go back to the either or. So it's so nuanced. This could be a, you know, four-day conversation here. And it is. I mean, obviously, it's debated everywhere. But I love the fact that hopefully folks out there, I guarantee if we were to sit down and lay out, lay out every single belief we had on these issues, we'd have some disagreements. And... I love this conversation because it's something that we, you know, we don't even know what those things are, but we can have a great conversation about it because these are tough 
issues, right? These are really, really hard issues. And so I look at it and go, man, what are the unintended consequences from any new technological advancement, as you talked about just there with that one little example of fossil fuels? These other things, like if we take them away, what happens? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. If we start doing all these solar power things, what happens? We don't know. What does it take to create all those things? You know, we don't know all those things because we've never done it. So what will happen on the other side of that? We don't know. And that's where some, wherever it is, there's risk. Right. And so that's that's why it is so hard. That's why there is no if we had a silver bullet to these things, we would have had it figured out a long time ago. We'd be done. We just check the box. Let's go. Let's move on. You know, OK, the orphan crisis gone. Boom. Sweet. Cool. No problem. Um, but we don't. You know, and so that's why, folks, I encourage you to find someone you you don't agree with on these issues and just ask the question, you know, what? why do you believe what you believe on this? Hopefully that's something you're doing with the gospel as well. Right. Like these are things that don't just bar yourself off and wall yourself off from someone and go, well, I disagree with them. Therefore, I can't talk. I can't talk to them. I totally disagree. Do you even know why you believe what you believe? That's another question. Like, Do you have any idea? Do you even know what fossil fuels are? Do you even, you know, like folks out there, I'm not talking to you guys, like folks out there, like these are real questions. Take a step back and go, do I believe it because somebody told me I should believe it or do I believe it because I've actually studied it and I actually talked to people I disagree with? Anyway, so with that, we are going to shift gears here and go to a different topic. That's why I love this ep- this podcast, though. It's because we can go into these issues, talk with people. You know, I purposely had people on I disagreed with on different issues. And it's such a fascinating conversation to hear and to actually talk with these in a civil way that we can hopefully walk away saying we might still disagree, but hey, we can still get along on 99% of the other things that we do agree on. So you wrote a book um, or edited a book. Um, I, I understand that process. That editing process is is a is a fun one and um, exhausting one as well. So kudos to you on that. But on a very important topic, um, especially we've talked a lot about on this podcast, but Reimagining Short-Term Missions is the name of that book. Um, what compelled you to undertake that project? You know, as somebody once uh, talked, told me about editing a book, you know, especially with multi-authors is, is uh it's like herding cats. So, you know, what, what, uh, um, compelled you to undertake that project and why do you find it necessary for people to reimagine short-term missions? Yeah. I mean, most of that, the motivation comes from experience, uh, especially when I was living longer term in Turkey, I would see and sometimes have to host short-term teams. And it was sometimes very discouraging. Um, watching what people came to do, expecting to do, um, ways that they came uh, kind of thinking that they were experts with a gift to give to the people. And just, uh, it it was a naivety, which uh, I found kind of profoundly disturbing. But I don't know, have you guys been involved in short-term mission trips, leading or participating? All all the above. I mean, I wonder, have there been times when you've been in those situations and this little voice says, oh, I'm not sure that this is what Paul meant, <laughs> right? When he mm-hmm. talks about, uh, you know, the things he did on his missionary journey. I, I, I mean, does that resonate with you? 100%. Oh, of course. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, I think that that's actually the experience of most people who've been involved in, in short-term missions. On the one hand, they've got the best motives possible, right? It's biblical go and spread the gospel, you know, make disciples of all nations. So, so who can fault that? Um, but I think, I think what has happened uh, is that, that short-term missions has really become an industry uh, in the last few decades. Uh, and we maybe have lost our way in terms of why we do it and what we do. Uh, and so really the book was in response to those questions that I think people are already asking, those suspicions that maybe we're not getting it right. Maybe there's a better way to use our time and resources. And so we really set out to do this really anthology of essays uh, with two goals. The first goal was to, first of all, pay attention to voices outside of the Western church sphere. Um, One of our main points in the book is that you know, in terms of mission, we need to think in terms of the global church and to stop thinking of sender and receiver, right? That really the church is all over the world. So we need to work together. And those of us in the West who want to do something in terms of missions in, say, the global South, 
we need to trust ourselves to the people in the global south to know better how to use us as a resource. Maybe even to the point of saying we don't think you should come at all. Uh, but that just takes real humility, and it's not you know a, a Western mindset to think in those more collaborative terms. Uh, and so the other kind of main theme of the book is a word that we ended up making up, um, and that word is co-powerment. And that word stands against empowerment, which is a limited word. Empowerment is useful at times. It, it, it implies that there's someone who has power or resources and they're giving it to someone else. And so, you know, aid agencies, mission agencies speak in terms of empowerment and as well they should. But, but the point we're making in the book is that sometimes we shouldn't think in those terms. Sometimes we shouldn't assume that we have the upper hand that because we have the resources that we can call the shots and uh, pretend that we're experts. So co-powerment is more of a, uh, an interactive dynamic that, that I need you to make me possible as much as you need me to make you possible, right? So if I feel like, you know, I really want to obey the Bible and get involved in missions, well, I shouldn't be the one to determine exactly what that looks like. I should actually ask others in the global church, what can this look like in ways that are collaborative, that draw on, on the context knowledge that you have that I simply don't. So I think uh, that's really the, the point of the, the book. And it's the reason we, we try to include a lot of voices from, from all around the world is because it represents that co-powering dynamic that we're trying to promote. I love that. I love that. And uh, you probably don't know this, but I, I was the book that I wrote was similarly, it was 15 co-authors um, from all, at least people who have worked in different places around the world, um, brought in some people from around the world. Um, and it was so powerful, I thought. Um, obviously, I, I'm a little biased on that. But, but that idea of doing that is so good, because even if it's similar backgrounds, it's just... Mm -hmm it's something that brings in such different voices from different places and for people to learn from each other as well. And, um, being able to edit that, I no doubt you were challenged and you were encouraged and you were emboldened hopefully to, you know, to really have clarity on, on different things, which is awesome. So mm -hmm. thanks for doing that. That's, that's fantastic. Um, so we always like to, uh, have part of this conversation be what what's a promising practice what is something good going on what do you what do you see that's giving you that is encouraging you um about what's going on with short-term missions uh, currently mm -hmm. yeah well i would say that you know to your point about my being affected by the work i was editing it really was encouraging to hear the stories of people who are in the quote-unquote mission field who are doing things differently, finding ways forward that are more collaborative, are based more on mutual humility and mutual collaboration. So, so I think in the book, there are lots and lots of encouraging stories, but maybe the one I'm closest to, just to give you an example, is my own church uh, here in Seattle, which is Bethany Community Church. Uh, and in fact, their missions pastor is one of the authors in the book, Nathan Nelson. And they have... Well, we have, I'm on their missions, have been in their missions committee, but we've historically built any missions involvement on partnership, long-term partnership. So for example, we uh, have partnership with, with churches and, and nonprofits in Rwanda. And uh, in those relationships, we, we as a church submit ourselves to their guidance in what our involvement looks like. And even if we're offering them resources, we're never offering resources on the condition of this is what you must do with this, right? But, but we ask the folks there, how can this make the biggest impact? How can this uh, you know, help us to be obedient to uh, the Great Commission? And so I, I think that relationship has really shaped even short-term missions because the, the people who go to Rwanda are really going more for reasons of education and learning and partnership, building those relationships. Um, more recently, I think we've built enough trust as a church that uh, the Rwandan uh, folks have asked us to help them teach things that we might know, you know, say certain kinds of leadership approaches, et cetera, or nonprofit management, what have you. And, 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 and that kind of trust only comes over time. 
And it only comes in a relationship where you're, you're acknowledging that both sides have something to offer. Both sides um, are, are equally valuable in the equation. I'm most excited by maybe what's happened most recently in that same relationship, we've begun to practice reverse missions. So we have Rwandans coming to us mm. and consulting with us. And for example, our church has a, a, you know, a ministry to um, folks who live on a, a, the Aurora Corridor, you know, folks who are uh, homeless or involved in the sex trade, et cetera. And we have asked the Rwandan folks to speak into our ministries, to evaluate them and give us feedback from from outside of the Western perspective. And so we get wisdom that we just would not otherwise yeah, get. Yep. And I just think that I, I, I laud the humility of the leaders in our church to be to be that open. Because that's risky, right? Mm-hmm. And it and it mm-hmm. wars against the the mentality that we're taught in the Western world that, you know, it's the expert who holds the power, you know, and, and so we need to know what we're doing and we need to lead. Uh, But oftentimes that translates into hubris, obviously. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And that's something I've seen so much of. I've been part of the global sports movement. And Mm -hmm. I I don't know that there's a a better example that I've become aware of, of collaboration, open source, just national driven ministry, where we are all learning from each other. We all have our kind of big regions. So we have the North American big region, the African, Asian, um, Latin American, and, and so on. Um, and it's so cool because there's a dude in Liberia who I've connected with, who created life coaching through sports that we're now taking that material and modifying it here, um, for cultural context, but be able to, you know, usually it's going the other way, right? But it, why? Because that's what we've done. And that's why we do it. Cause we've done it that way. And we're going to keep doing it cause we've done it that way. And it's like, no, that is not that there's so many amazing people everywhere. And how do we empower, as you say, co-power? I like that. I like that. But how do we come into that and say, hey, we are together in this. What does that look like? Who cares who gets the credit? Well, we want God to get the credit, but that's it. And it makes it so much easier, so much better, so much more effective when we can do that. Um, Not just so we can do it better there, right? Because that's what we say. Oh, well, let's just, you know, work together so we can do it. No. How can we take those things and take them right here where I'm in Folsom, California and say, no, this works here because the guy over in Liberia did it in a way that was amazing, you know, or wherever. Right. So I love that. Love that. That's so good. Uh, Forrest, I would love just kind of as we wrap up our time, you know, we have a we have an audience that is passionate about God, passionate about setting things right in the world, seeing communities develop, progress and so forth would love if you could just quickly give us your best piece of advice, you know, for someone that is pursuing God's heart of justice in the nations. What is that? What, what would be one thing that you would recommend that they do? Something practical, something they can jump into? Well, I love it that we're ending a conversation on, on themes of humility and listening and teachability, because I really think that that is the key. Um, you know, when you say justice, I would say that that we as maybe Western Christ followers need to, first of all, learn that in that justice can be defined both in terms of environmental justice and social justice, and that the two are really interconnected. Um, so I would say, you know, first of all, define justice for what, what it really could be uh, just more broadly and holistically. So don't assume that that you know what justice or injustice looks like. And I would say part of that is confessing to God at the outset that, you know, like all human beings, we see the world through cultural biases and we have to ask God to help us to see more clearly. Um, And then in true humility, take the time to listen and to learn from those who live in the context of injustice and let them and the Holy Spirit guide us in how to pursue justice. That's what I'd say. Oh, that is so good. Um, and Even puppy the dog likes it. Word. I love it. That's so funny it. because we were starting this, and you're like, "My dog's gonna, my dog's gonna bark." And now somebody, well, my dog is poised. Now, he hears us. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to get Dodger over here. Dodger, quiet. I'm not even going to edit that out. Um, Dr. Inslee. <laughs> such um, a great point that Dodger knew. And it was Dodger's like, like amen, amen. And yes, yeah, for, for our exactly. listeners, you should probably know I'm a diehard Dodger yeah. fan, so 
our 12-year-old dog from Tanzania is named Dodger. Well, uh, Dr. Inslee, uh, thank you so much for that. You know, justice is something that's so dear to the heart of this this, uh, podcast community. And I just appreciate that reflection. So, uh, Forrest, thank you so much for joining us. I really have appreciated our time. Thank you. It's been an honor. And uh, to our listeners, I'm just going to pray this over us. May God grant us grace to fearlessly contend against evil and to make no peace with oppression, and that we may reverently use our freedom. Help us to employ it in the maintenance of justice in our communities and among the nations. To the glory of God's holy name through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Spirit, one God now and forever. Bless you guys, and we'll talk to you guys in a couple weeks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Think Global. If you enjoyed the show, please do three things for us. One, rate and review us online. Two, share it with a friend. And three, join us at canopy.international so you can plug into a community of disciples seeking God's justice, mercy, and shalom throughout the world. We'll talk to you soon.